Hi, One Goal community. It's Elaine Boyd, Pelotonia's Event and Volunteer Operations Coordinator. Since 2008, Pelotonia has raised over $236 million for innovative cancer research. And thanks to our partners, 100% of those funds have gone directly to research at the James at Ohio State. Together, we will see an end to cancer. To get involved in our one goal, visit pelotonia.org. That's pelotonia.org or click on the link in the episode notes. This podcast is powered by Pelotonia. To learn more about our goal 10 cancer, visit pelotonia.org or see the link in the show notes. So I remember when we got home, my mom called my dad to tell him he was at work, called to tell him about the diagnosis. And my sister happened to be there and overheard her talking to my dad on the phone. And it was like just shocking. I mean, at that point, I hadn't even processed what I'd been told. So if I could tell my younger self something, it would be you're stronger than you think. And your life is going to have greater purpose than you ever thought possible. How has this cancer impacted my life? And um, how can I provide some hope for these people maybe going through something really similar now um, that this isn't the end, that for me, this was a beginning. Welcome to One Goal, a podcast from Pelotonia. We're a community that's dedicated to funding life-saving cancer research through a three-day experience of cycling and volunteerism. I'm your host and ride community manager, Jill Landino. Your journey with us to the finish line begins now. Through research, we will see an end to cancer. Thankfully, every single penny raised through our riders, virtual riders, and volunteers goes directly towards the solution. This is made possible by our major funding partners, the Elburns Foundation, Huntington, the American Electric Power Foundation, and Peggy and Richard Santuli. It's because of them, all of our partners, and this dedicated community that all of this is possible. At the age of 21, Mary Connolly was preparing to graduate from The Ohio State University. But just a year into her college career, she started experiencing a pain behind her knee. This pain would turn out to be the very thing she wished it wasn't. But it would also turn out to be the thing that moved her life and career to achieve things she would have never before imagined. But first, let's go back to that moment when things began to change for Mary. In this episode, this was a beginning. It was really this increase in pain that caused me to go back to that doctor and say, look, something is really wrong. Like, this is not, this isn't the same pain I had when I saw you a year ago. This is worse. And so that prompted them to do some more follow-up testing. And that's what actually revealed a very small mass um, behind my knee. But it was enough cause for concern based on its location that they actually referred me to the James before they ever tried to do any surgery. Actually, when I went to the initial appointment with Dr. Mayerson before the first surgery, I saw all these materials on the wall and I was kind of like, huh, sarcoma, I've never heard of that before. And it was just a passing like, huh, that's weird. Um, Never thinking that I would soon learn quite personally what sarcoma was. So I was referred to the specialist, Dr. Joel Mayerson at the James. And when he first met with me, he actually wasn't very concerned because I'd been having pain for so long and the mass was so small, really wasn't consistent with a cancer diagnosis. But I told him I was having so much pain that I didn't care what the side effects might be. Um, They were very worried about me developing a foot drop just because there's a nerve that runs very close to where the tumor was. And they said, you know, it's really easy to hit that during surgery and that might end up resulting in in a permanent foot drop where you can't lift your foot anymore. 
And I was like, it's fine. I'm in so much pain. I just want you to take out whatever is in there. I'll take the chance, take the risk. And so I went in for surgery. They did know during surgery that it was a tumor, but they told me that it was benign when I woke up afterwards. So I went to my follow-up appointment to have the stitches removed from the surgery that my doctor had done to remove the tumor. And really, it was a very, you know, I went into the appointment very lighthearted, was actually excited to get the stitches out and was more worried about what the scar on my leg was going to look like long-term than anything else at that point. And so my doctor came in and told me, you know, the more extensive pathology came back and you have cancer. And I started laughing. I thought he was joking. Really? And I I asked him, I was like, are you joking? And he was like, I, I'm an oncologist. I don't joke about this. And that's when it sort of hit me like, I have cancer. And I remember there were these neon flyers in the room that explained what sarcoma was. And I was kind of like, oh, like, I need that now. Like, I actually need to know what this cancer is. And the rest of that appointment, though, really is a blur. Like, I remember my mom started crying and asking a lot of questions and writing things down. And I really don't remember anything else. Um, I remember walking to the parking garage after the appointment. I don't remember anything that we talked about on the drive home. Um, It all just, it really just all became a blur. I think it was very isolating for me. I didn't know anyone else that had been through something similar. I felt very much like my life had been put on hold and everyone else was moving forward and doing all these things that you're supposed to do at that time in life, like getting your first job, you know, getting engaged or planning a wedding, Mm -hmm. thinking about your future and what that's going to look like. And for me, even though I still had a lot of those hopes and dreams, my focus was more on, am I going to be alive at this time next year? What is my physical therapy going to look like over the next six months? Am I going to have nerve pain a year from now from this surgery? Um, Will I be able to go back to doing the things that are really meaningful to me? And so it was just a different perspective than I would have ever thought I'd have at that point in my life. A lot of my friends were away at school. Um, I had friends that would come back on the weekends and would visit. But it's just hard when it really does just feel like this is a season of my life that's never going to change. It's never going to be different. You just feel kind of stuck like... You know, if the cancer comes back, then this is just going to become what my life looks like, going to doctor's appointments, going to physical therapy, seeing doctors, um, focusing on trying to maintain my health or improve my health um, versus some of those other kind of outside things. So as you, you know, the, I don't know if the shock really ever wears off from something like that, but to a degree, right, you have to go into action and and decide, um, you know, what's going to happen next. So with uh, Dr. Mayerson and your parents, you know, what did you guys decide to do from that point on? So I had surgery to remove the tumor. And then um, after that more extensive pathology came back, they decided they needed to go back in and get clear margins. Um, So they went in and did that surgery and actually took out a section of the nerve that was really close to the tumor because they were worried it had gotten contaminated or that the cancer had spread into the nerve. And there's no way to 
test a nerve aside from removing it and, and doing an actual biopsy. So um, when they removed that nerve, and I knew this going into the surgery, that it would result in a permanent foot drop. So anyway, yeah, so I knew that I was going to, when I woke up from that surgery, I wouldn't be able to lift my foot ever again. And then after I healed from that surgery, we debated about chemotherapy and radiation. And my tumor was smaller than what they typically would recommend a chemo treatment for. Um, and so that was kind of immediately we decided that wasn't something to pursue since they hadn't been able to find the cancer anywhere else in my body. They knew it hadn't spread through some additional testing that they did. And then the radiation um, we actually ended up deciding against as well because a lot of times radiation can cause a secondary cancer. It's a, it's a type of sarcoma actually that's, that's caused by radiation. And so there was concern that because of just the location of where the tumor was and that it, that it might actually cause a secondary, like that the cancer, trying to treat this cancer might cause another cancer and then we're kind of in a worse situation. And so we did just kind of a wait and see um, to, you know, monitor and make sure it didn't come back in the same place. Yeah. Was that scary for you to take that wait and see approach? Oh, for sure. Because that decision was actually my decision. Um, my doctors helped me with getting second opinions from other places and providing their best recommendation. But ultimately it was up to me. So in a lot of ways, I felt like I was sort of gambling with my life. Like if this comes back in six months, I'm going to know that I made the wrong decision. So I've never had a recurrence. So the cancer has never come back in the same place. And to this point, I've never had a metastasis either, um, and I'm a little over 10 years out now. So when I was, when, after my initial diagnosis and surgery, I was very fear, fearful about a recurrence, especially because of that decision not to have radiation. Um, I had scans every three months for the first two years, so they were doing um, either CAT scans or x-rays of my chest because um, sarcoma commonly spreads to the lungs. That's where it goes kind of first. And so it's hard to not be in a mindset of, is this cancer coming back or not? When every three months you're reminded of it because you're going to an appointment to check for it. So for me, that was, you know, of course it was constantly on my mind anyways, but then um, there's a term that's been coined by cancer survivors called scanxiety, where you really have this anxiety leading up to your scan appointment, where you, it, I mean, it's 50-50, right? Yeah. It maybe didn't show anything the last time, but it might show something this time. And just this kind of worry of if that's, if that happens, what, what happens next? Mm -hmm. What's the game plan? And so um, I think that fear is always there but it has definitely lessened for me over the course of the last decade. And, but I would say even leading up to my appointment this year, when I, you know, knew that I had already been 10 years cancer free, the week leading up to that appointment was still hard for me. And I still noticed myself kind of having that anxiety of, it's, I know it's been 10 years, but even when you're in remission, there's always a chance that it can come back. Um, so I think that it's always there, but it just that that fear and anxiety lessens over time. How did you come to start understanding that, OK, maybe there's not as much um, of a resource or anything out there to support people like me who went through cancer at a, at a younger age? I think it was probably I was a few years out and had started sort of to piecing together my own support 
resources. So the best way to describe it is that I had, you know, an incredible team of doctors around me at the James. My surgeon um, has become a friend and it's just been an in, really an incredible opportunity to get to know people that I wouldn't have met any other way. Um, but in a certain sense, it's like, oh, well, you don't have any evidence of disease right now. So go live your life. And I really didn't know where to start because my perspective had changed so much and I felt like the cancer had just completely turned my world upside down and it wasn't feasible for me to just go back to living as though the cancer had never happened. It was this really life-altering traumatic thing that had happened and I was trying to figure out how to incorporate that into my life moving forward. And so I met um, another survivor who had sarcoma when she was 13 and she ended up being my mentor just kind of by coincidence um, when I was in that um, internship and then in my first job. And so she was really supportive and helpful in, in being able to say, I know what you're, I know exactly what you're going through. And this is how I kind of handled similar situations. This is how I started dating again. This is how I told people that I had had cancer and how it had impacted my life. And so I think having that outside insight, somebody that had been through something very similar and could share their own personal experiences was really helpful. And then um, I actually ended up seeing a counselor as well, which was really helpful and just helped me in a more formal way process some of the challenging parts of my cancer experience and how it had affected my family relationships, my personal relationships, my body image, how there were all these different parts of my life that were impacted by cancer. And I didn't really know how to process that myself and really um, experience growth from it. It was more of this paralyzing thing for me where I just didn't know how to move forward. And so did that kind of all that learning that you were amassing and saying, oh, wow, this is working really well for me. Do you think that's what drove you to want to get in touch with more young adult cancer survivors? For sure. I started to realize as I met other young survivors that my experience wasn't that different. And there are, are very common challenges that young adults face, regardless of what kind of cancer they're diagnosed with. And so instead of leaving these young patients to figure out those resources on their own, we can create a more formalized, structured program that reaches out to these patients and offers them that support at set points in time when we know they're experiencing anxiety or they're likely to be experiencing challenges transitioning back to life post-treat, you know, post-cancer treatment, or they're likely to be experiencing maybe challenges with family planning or fertility. It's there are just these things that will continue to come up over the course of their lifetime. And those are things that we can proactively help them with instead of leaving them to sort of flounder and try to figure it out on their own. So how are you doing that today? And how have you kind of made this your, your thing? So my first kind of entrance into this was as a patient voice on a steering committee for the James to really try to help. This was about five years ago to really try to provide some insight to people that were trying to provide more formal support to young adult patients. And then as I went into my master's program in social work and then now have become a social worker at the James, that position and role has shifted from being the patient to really using my experiences to inform how we can better support patients and really try to help be a part of determining what that support looks like and how, how to best design that. 
And so I'm now on a steering committee at the James that's working to develop formalized support for these young patients and um, was able to be a part of a um, applying for a grant through a national organization called Teen Cancer America that um, ended up awarding the James and Nationwide Children's a grant to start a formal young adult cancer program. Um, so regardless of which hospital patients are treated at in Columbus, they'll have access to the same supportive resources. So that's been really exciting to see that kind of support come into play at both of the hospitals. And I'm hopeful that as that program continues to get developed, that I'll be able to continue being a part of it and help really provide a voice in helping to shape that program. It's been very eye-opening to work with patients at the James. I think my experience with cancer was, was just one experience. And so being able to work with patients who come from all different walks of life, all different backgrounds, they've had all different life experiences before their diagnosis, um, a lot of um, barriers to diagnosis, to treatment, um, seeing the challenges that patients have as they navigate cancer treatment while also trying to be a parent to their kids, um, and then some of the difficult conversations that they have to have if their treatment maybe isn't going as planned um, are all just really important perspectives that I think I didn't fully understand before I had this job. But now having had the opportunity to really walk alongside patients at these really kind of pivotal points in their treatment process and often helping patients transition to end-of-life care has just been such a privilege and just has given me a different perspective on even how to deliver support. What do you think has been um, the most rewarding? I think people feel like fighting their cancer means never stopping treatment. And I think there are often a lot of clinical trials and really unique treatments that we have to offer patients. But many of the patients that I work with are very, very sick and often nearing end of life. And I think there's something really rewarding about being able to go into a patient room, meet with a patient and their family, and help them navigate the decision to stop treatment and to focus on comfort and quality of life and really making the most of the time that they have left and recognizing that that's not giving up or not continuing to fight. It's making a choice to... I think people need to have someone in their life that gives them permission to choose to stop treatment and focus on quality of life with the, their family and friends with the time that they have left, knowing that it might not be a long time. It might be a few days, it might be a few months, but whatever that time looks like, they're choosing to make that time the way they want it to be in the place they want it to be rather than spending it going in and out of emergency rooms or spending it in a hospital room. Yeah, that must be challenging and to, to take that home and, and even be there every day um, with that on you. But um, do you, I'm, I'm curious, do you tell your patients or anybody that you're working with that you're a survivor? To be honest, I never have, mostly because there haven't been any situations yet where I felt like that was going to be helpful and supportive to patients. A lot of the patients I work with are very sick, and so I haven't found that it would be helpful to tell them that I had cancer and am now 10 years out 
when they're often they've come to the realization that that's not going to be their situation. Um, but I am, as you mentioned earlier, I am very open in sharing my story and have definitely found other ways to share that experience with other young patients. My first year participating in Pelotonia was about three years after I was diagnosed. And because my cancer was in my leg, it was really challenging for me to become physically active again. I was really worried that I was going to injure something or just do something to to cause some sort of problem to this major surgery that I'd had and not wanting to have to like go back and repair something. And um, so obviously like worked with physical therapists to rebuild my strength, but then Pelotonia was really the first major, I guess, major athletic feat that I tried to tackle after my surgery. And so it was really a combination of just this curiosity about this new movement that I'd heard really great things about, but hadn't actually personally been a part of, and then ended up actually training for my first year of Pelotonia with my mentor. Um, And so that was just a really great opportunity. We did training rides together, so it gave me more time to spend with her. And she was more experienced with biking, and so she was able to show me how to do things, like how to make repairs on my bike. And there was just this sort of comfort level with knowing that when I was out riding with her, like if something happened, she could she could <laughs> she help could me. I wasn't yeah. going to be like stranded at Hills Market <laughs> with no way to get back to campus. Um, so I think it was really just being able to show myself that I was able to ride. And I, I only did 25 miles the first year. Nope, but not only. <laughs> that's right. You did 25 that's miles. Right. I did 25 miles the first year. And... Not only was it incredible to be a part of just riding that distance with a bunch of other riders, but I remember so many people along the way cheering me on because I was a survivor and saying these really encouraging things to me. And I think for me, I always felt like being a survivor was not something that other people my age had experienced, and it wasn't really something to be super open about or to to really share with other people at that point I just wasn't very open about my story I wasn't really sure how to communicate it to other people and so there was something just really empowering about feeling like it was actually kind of a cool thing to be a survivor as a part of Pelotonia and knowing that I had all these people around me cheering me on who didn't even know me they were just riding past me or cheering me on from the sidelines and just saw that that um, survivor on my jersey and were cheering for me. Good. It made you proud. Yeah. I felt really proud to be a survivor. So how did the first ride go? Was it, did you train enough? Were you like limping to the finish line? (laughs) (laughs) I actually don't remember. I don't remember it being too difficult. Good. Um, And I rode with my, my mentor. And so that was really helpful. Um, But yeah, I just, I remember feeling really accomplished at the end. Like, wow, I did, I just rode 25 miles. And a couple years ago at this exact same time, I was, you know, getting ready to prepare for a major surgery and not be able to bend my leg for six weeks. Like, so just to think about the the difference and, you know, thinking about how I just wasn't sure how, how I would ever move past that season of life where I was recovering from that major surgery to then a couple years later have been graduated from college, working in my first job, 
and able to participate in Pelotonia is just, it wasn't something I ever imagined would happen. Yeah. Full circle moment, right? Absolutely. Um, what did you think of the fundraising that first year? Was that something that you were hesitant to commit to? Did you think, oh, I've got this? It was a little overwhelming, um, but I, I felt confident that between my family and friends and people that knew my story that I'd be able to to make the commitment. And because I had been so personally impacted by cancer, I felt like I had, you know, I had this army of supporters around me during that experience. And I felt like those were the same people I could go back to, to ask to support me mm-hmm. in my first ride. So your fundraising went well that first so, year. So yeah, it went well. And it's, I assume, gone pretty well every year since. Yes. Because you've been open and, and, yeah. and sharing your story and um, gotten a lot of your friends and family involved, it sounds like, in yes. the, the cause. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So participating for seven years, I mean, that is incredible and, and isn't without challenge, you know, getting the time to train and get back on the bike every year and, and send those emails. Um, do you have any, you know, special memories of whether it's training or out on the ride that stick out to you over the last seven years? So my, so I've had both, I have two sisters Mm -hmm. and I've had them each participate with me separate years in the ride. And so I think for me, that is just such a very tangible sign of their support that this thing that they know is so important to me and such a, such an important way for me to kind of commemorate the fact that it's been like another year that I'm well enough to be able to ride um, is probably been one of the most meaningful and powerful things for me. Um, and then last year I did for my 10 year, um, I decided for my 10 year cancer anniversary, I wanted to do a different route because mm-hmm. I had done the 50 or the, no, I had is that right. 45. I had done the 45 mile route. And felt like it was pretty manageable. I probably didn't train quite as much as I should have for the 45, but I was like, you know, I made it. It was fine. Everybody says that the 55 is totally doable. So I'm going to recruit my sister and we're going to ride together and this is going to be huge. And so I trained probably about the same as I did in the previous years when I probably could have used a, a few more training rides before the, the day of, but I was like, you know, your adrenaline gets pumping. Oh, yeah. and, you can do it. You know, it's, it's going to be great. Well, I got to the 40 mile mark on that 55 mile ride. And I looked at my sister and I was like, I think I'm done. I feel really accomplished right now. And I think I might just stop here. And um, how was she feeling? Was she feeling the same way or ready to charge on? She had trained a little bit more than me. And she was like, you have less mileage left to go now than the last distance we rode from the last rest stop. Like, you can totally do this. And so I was like, "Okay, if you're sure. So um, got back on my bike and kept going. And we got to it was probably close to like a half hour from the end in terms of like how our speed of riding and there was this elderly couple on the side of the road in their front yard with a sign and they were cheering for us and they were like you're 10 minutes from the finish line you're 10 minutes from the finish line and by that point we were both just like I mean it was 90 degrees it was so hot 
and we were just ready to be done. Like we were just exhausted. And so we were like, okay, 10 more, 10 more minutes. We can do this. Well, like 20 minutes went by and there's like no sign of the finish line. And we're like, what were they telling us? Was it like <laughs> how long it takes to drive? Like, where's the finish line? And so um, that was something that we laugh about now because we obviously did make it to the finish, but um, that was probably the hardest ride yet. You know, rode with my sister and my sister was the one at my bedside um, at the hospital at the James when I, you know, first had my surgery and was recovering. And then she was the one that was there cheering me on, you know, at the end of this really hard ride that I thought I'm never going to make it through this. So I've always been a writer, a journaler from the time I was, you know, 11 or 12. It's just been a way that I've been able to kind of process my life experiences. And so when I was recovering from um, my surgery, I obviously had a lot of time on my hands. And so I just thought, you know, I'm going to I'm going to just write about what's happening right now. And maybe I'll look back on this, you know, a few years and from now and kind of realize what I've been through and how far I've come and it wasn't until probably let's it was it probably wasn't until about a year before I actually finished the book that I was like I think I'm going to turn some of my experience and the journal entries that I, you know, had written over the years into a book and into um a way to share my story but more importantly, hopefully a way to help other young survivors feel less alone in what they're experiencing because I had that one friend that became a mentor who I was really able to lean on and seek support and insight from. But I was coming to realize that there were a lot of people that didn't have that person. And so I thought, what would like kind of where would I be today without the advice and help from that person? And there's no way I can ever share my story with every young survivor in the world, right? Like I can never sit down and have coffee for an hour with everybody. But if I was going to sit down and share my story with these other young survivors, what would I tell them? How has this cancer impacted my life? And um, how can I provide some hope for these people maybe going through something really similar now um, that this isn't the end, that for me this was a beginning? That's great. Did you share it with other people initially for their input or did you keep it, you know, kind of close to home until it it published? So I gave it to my younger sister to read um, because she experienced um, a bit of a health crisis around the same time that I did. And so we kind of bonded over that. And I felt like from a family perspective, because I talked a lot, I talk a lot in the book about how challenging it was to communicate with my family about the cancer. And so I wanted to have a family perspective on it and make sure that it was clearly and accurately communicated. And so I gave it to her to read uh, before we, before we printed it. And then once it was printed, I gave it to my parents to read before I released it to everyone else. Um, So they had it for about a week before I gave it to everybody else. One of the things that I talk about a lot in the book is just how I felt like my cancer was this elephant in the room. Like Mm -hmm. my whole family knew it was happening. It was the center of all of our worlds in some respects, but it was never something that we could talk about. Yeah. And I'm a very verbal processor. And so for me, that was hard. And I just couldn't make sense of this. Like, why would they never bring this up? Why would we never be able to talk about this? And from their perspective, it was, well, you never brought it up. So we didn't think you wanted to talk about it. And we didn't want to 
you know, kind of force this conversation that maybe you weren't ready to have or didn't want to have. And so I think it's just really interesting. Like I had, you know, it's like I, you kind of get caught in your own perspective Mm -hmm. and in where you're at and you don't have the ability to kind of see outside of that. So I do think that especially now that I'm as far out as I am from my cancer and from, from that experience, I'd really like to learn more about what their perspective was during that time. You are a seasoned participant now and, and of course have every reason to participate in Pelotonia, but um, there are folks who may not have as close of a cancer journey um, as you have. You know, What would you tell somebody who's on the fence on participating in Pelotonia as a rider, a, a virtual rider, whatever? You absolutely won't regret it. It's an experience that no one can really explain to you. You don't really understand it till you experience it for yourself. The energy of the event, the people, the volunteers, the best PB&J you've ever had in your life. You will never know what that's like until you're at mile 40 and really hungry. (laughs) Um, Blue Gatorade, best thing ever. Um, best tasting Gatorade ever. (laughs) So I think there's just, there's something about the community of Pelotonia that's unlike any other community I've experienced. And I even find myself when I'm driving down the road and I see a Pelotonia magnet on somebody else's car, like you feel like you have this connection to this person that you know nothing about in life. Yeah. Um, You want to look and see like, hey, me too, right? (laughs) Yeah. And so there's just something really powerful about knowing that you've had that ex- that same experience or very similar experience to someone else and being a part of the Pelotonia movement. Since I'm such a word person, my arrow is filled with all the words that make up my cancer experience and my Pelotonia experience. Um, so it's everything from community, family, connection, to healing, um, restoration, rejuvenation, health and wellness. And then, you know, for my patients too. Um, and just the, the different perspective I have now in realizing how deep the impact is and how far reaching the impact is of the money that's raised for Pelotonia. In the few hours that we spent with Mary, hearing about her story and what her life has really turned out to be for the better, it's just incredible to see what this young survivor has made possible in her life. And she's shared her story with her book, Celebrate Sarcoma. So that story could be shared with so many others and potentially to connect with other young survivors and make them feel not so alone in this journey. We want to say thank you to our major funding partners who make everything in the Palatania world possible. So thank you to the Alburns Foundation, Huntington, the American Electric Power Foundation, and Peggy and Richard Santoli. The Palatani community is certainly known for being passionate, but they're also known for having a lot of fun when they bring their friends and family together. So at the end of each podcast, we're excited to share with you a really fun highlight for bringing folks together in the community that we've heard of. So Olivia, who is my colleague and Pelotonia's Ride Community Coordinator, uh, is here to share a little bit about a fundraising idea that she's heard of lately that some others might consider in the future. Every year we hear about couples who are working together to raise funds Mm -hmm. and they are trying to get creative because they have two of them asking their same network for donations. And one couple in particular, a uh, friend Emily and Brandon Smith. Emily is one of our colleagues at Pelotonia HQ. So they host this amazing derby fundraiser where they 
rent out space at a local uh, watering hole and they get appetizers and then they get a flood of raffle and auction items. Mm. So you show up, you get to dress in your derby gear, get your best hat, and then bid on some amazing items. Mm-hmm. I mean, they go all out. And this event has raised $3,500 in one year alone. Mm-hmm. And they're continuing to grow it every year. I think it's a really awesome example of, you know, finding an event or a holiday that maybe there aren't typically parties around, you know, um, the Derby being one that you might not have ever thought, oh, I could turn this into a fundraiser. But it's a time that people are excited to come out, um, you know, hopefully spend some money and have a good time. And uh, yeah, with their fundraiser, I know they've been incredibly successful. Yeah. So one thing that Emily and Brandon do is they utilize social media. And they'll both post on Facebook the same day, asking for friends and family to donate towards their ride fundraising. And it's a challenge. So they'll see who chooses to to donate to Brandon and who chooses to donate to Emily and who can raise the most that day. And it's pretty hilarious. A little healthy competition is good. And yeah, you could do that easily between siblings, between, you know, parents, anything like that. Um, I think that's a fun way to take on it. So thank you so much for sharing. Hopefully some other couples who participate with us after that uh, might consider working that into their efforts. So let's keep listening here for a preview of our next episode. He had all the reason in the world to complain, and yet he was the one who was always encouraging me when I was sad about everything. He was the one who was always the first to crack a joke in a room, and I'm like, here you are lying on this bed. How can you possibly be filled with all this joy and this humor, and I'm crying? And he's like, I love you. Like, it was never about him. You've been listening to One Goal, a podcast from Pelotonia, hosted by me, Ride Community Manager Jill Landino, with interview production and scheduling by Marketing Communications Manager Emily Smith. Produced, mixed, and sound designed at the studios of Wessler Media by Vince Tornero. Additional mastering by Joey Gerwin at Orin Judio. Special thank you to all of our guests for being so open and willing to share their stories. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast, as that will help others hear these empowering stories. If you're curious about joining the Pelotonian community and making an impact on cancer research, please see the link in the episode notes or visit pelotonia.org. That's pelotonia.org.